why don't we take our Bibles and go to the book of Philippians. We have come to the end of this letter. We are in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Paul ends his letter to this, this dear church by writing, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I know in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. During my intern days in preparing for ministry, a wise pastor once told me, you can tell most about a man by what he does with his wallet and his gas pedal. He was right, especially about the wallet. A person's stance toward money and possessions says much about where the heart is, which is probably why wealth was one of Jesus's favorite subjects in the Gospels. Right up there with the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is the subject of wealth or money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus said. No one can serve two masters. Wealth keeps many people from following Jesus. Whether that is because they are satisfied with the material accumulation that they have or whether they are too busy seeking more of it, wealth keeps people from following Jesus. That's why in Luke chapter 19, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and, and he wants to have eternal life and Jesus says, the one thing that you lack, go and sell everything that you own and give it to the poor. Give the proceeds to the poor. Rich young man walked away. Jesus explains to his disciples, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And the disciples go, well, who then can be saved? Jesus says, with man this is impossible. With God all things are possible. But wealth keeps many people from following Jesus. Wealth can cause divisions among us. Christians sometimes take advantage of one another on the grounds of having a common faith, whether that be a, a business venture or residence or whatever it is. 
Those in leadership can fall into greed and abuse their position for selfish gain. We often see Christian leaders fall in the area of sexual immorality. We just don't note it as much. It's not as big of a deal for us when they embezzle money, when they steal, when they misappropriate funds. It happens just as often, if not more so. On the other hand, wealth can plant churches. Wealth can send gospel servants to unreached peoples. Wealth can feed someone who's hungry or clothe someone who's cold. Wealth can bring Christians together for the gospel mission. Wealth can be invested in a kingdom that does not fade. And wealth can actually be translated into eternal reward. Did you know that Jesus and the 12 disciples were funded by faithful followers who believed Jesus' teachings and therefore supported his mission and his preaching financially? Listen to just this little passing reference in Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. A group of women, a women's study, a women's small group, a group of ladies who had all been delivered from evil spirits or some other and sin and so on or whatever else was ailing them, illness, disease, whom Jesus had ministered to, who had healed, whom he had delivered, followed Jesus at least part of the time and pooled together their money and supported Jesus and the disciples. The Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary of our age, was funded by established churches to go preach the gospel and plant new churches according to the call of God. What Paul has to say here in Philippians 4 is a good example of this. In this case, the Philippians have sent Paul a financial gift to meet his needs while in prison. Paul concludes his letter to the Philippian church by acknowledging the importance of this gift, which has been delivered to him by Epaphroditus, their messenger. But the gift is not important for the expected reasons. It's not important because it met Paul's need, though I think Paul had need and it did meet it. But Paul clarifies in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need. It wasn't important because Paul had some expectation of the Philippians as though Paul had laid some obligation on them to send him financial aid while he was in prison. Not that I seek the gift, he says in verse 17. The gift was so important to Paul, it caused him to rejoice in the Lord greatly. Because of what it meant for the priority of the gospel and the advance of the gospel for the glory of God. And so Paul gives us here six necessary perspectives that explain why this relationship of giving and receiving is meaningful for the gospel. These perspectives 
need to be in place for giving and receiving to be in the gospel priority. First of all, there needs to be a persistent concern. Look at verse 10. A persistent concern. Well, some time has gone by since Paul has received any support from the Philippians. It may have been some time since he had received any word from them. The word revived here, your concern is, was revived for me, is a word that described a, a plant that bloomed in the spring after a winter dormancy. So this is a renewal of concern that had once been, but then was absent for some time, but is now revived. And Paul affirms that he understands that this has not been due to a lack of concern, but that it is because of a lack of opportunity. I'm glad that your concern is revived for me in the sense that you're now able to express it and show it because I know that you've had this concern all along. You just haven't had the opportunity. We don't know the reasons for this. Probably it was because Paul was always on the move and somewhere in his journeys, communication had broken down. Messengers had stopped coming. They couldn't find where Paul was. They didn't have any way of getting support to Paul to help him in his, in his mission. And it's not until he ends up in prison that they're able to renew their contact with him. But whatever the reason, their concern is not inconsistent. It's not inconsistent. And it's this word concern that's really the key. This word concern is Paul's favorite word in the letter to the Philippians. It is usually translated mind. In chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you. It's the same word. Chapter 1, verse 27, I want you to stand firm with one mind. In chapter 2, verse 2, have the same mind. In chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind among you that was also Christ Jesus, yours in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 15, think this way. And if you don't think this way, this also God will make clear to you. In chapter 4, verse 2, in the ESV, it's translated agree. Help Syntyche and Euodia agree. Be of the same mind. In chapter 4, verse 8, just before this, he has said, he has listed all these things out, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. Think about these things, same word. Fill your mind with them, put your mind on them. And now in verse 10, he uses it two more times. Concern, you were concerned. We have a, a like phrase we can tell someone, you've been on my mind. You've been on my mind lately. If I say to you, you know, I, you've been on my, line, my mind lately, it means I've been thinking about you. I've been concerned with who you are, what you're doing, or how your life is. You've been on my mind. And Paul says, I rejoice greatly that I am on your mind again. And I know that I have been on your mind. You just haven't had the opportunity to express it. Actually, it's very similar 
if not the same, as what Paul means in chapter 1, verse 7, when he says, you've been on my mind. It's right for me to feel this way about you. It's right for me to think this way. It's right for you to be on my mind in this way, affectionately. You say, Sean, it seems like you talk about this word every week. I guess I do, but I, Paul seems to use it every week. It's an important word to him. He uses it over and over and over again in a very short letter. And I believe it's so significant because this word has to do with an attitude of mind that builds relationships. And when he looks at the church in Philippi, the one thing he sees that could jeopardize their partnership, their love for him, and their love for the gospel and the work in the gospel is is some sort of division that they would put self-interest in front of others' interest. And it is this that is the cause of Paul's great joy because it demonstrates their mindset. Their mindset is in the right place to respond to the letter. That is, how they think towards him in such a one-minded way. This is a good sign to Paul. And the fact that they have, with one mind, sent this gift to him to support him to meet his needs is not so much about his his own need as it is what it says about their mindedness, their one-mindedness. And how fitting that Paul should open the letter with his mind on them and close the letter by acknowledging how their mind is on him. Paul did not have many relationships with the churches like he had with the church in Philippi. So the first perspective that is needed is one of persistent concern, this mind that is on one another. The second is perfect contentment. Perfect contentment. Not that I am speaking of being in need, verse 11. This doesn't mean that Paul didn't have needs, financial needs, but that his great joy is not bound up with his circumstances. It means that the root of his joy is not that a need was met, but that they were concerned for him, that their mind was on him. He can transcend whatever situation he is in because he has learned to be content. The uncertain circumstances of the gospel mission had schooled Paul in the subject of contentment. And it was a course that Paul says here he has passed. I have learned. At times, Paul had been brought low. That's humiliation. Because he had nothing. At times he abounded or could be translated prospered. He had prospered. He had had plenty. He had had extra. He had faced plenty and he had faced hunger. He had faced abundance and he had faced need. He had experienced all these things. And I want you to note that both having plenty and being in need require contentment. 
To be in need without contentment produces jealousy and complaining and dissatisfaction and self-pity. And that's how we usually think of the need of contentment, is if I don't have something that I want or think that I need, contentment is saying it's okay. I'm good with where I am, and that is true. But that's only one side of it. Paul says he has learned to be content when he is in need, to be satisfied. One example of this might be 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is afflicted by that thorn in the flesh, and he requests three times to the Lord to remove it. Whatever it was, it was painful. And Jesus' words to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect, complete in your weakness. Paul says, therefore, I rejoice in my weaknesses. I rejoice in my frailties. It's that kind of contentment. But Paul also says, I have learned to be content when I have plenty, when I prosper, when I have abundance. To have plenty without contentment corrupts. It corrupts with greed and pride and self-sufficiency. Don't think the wealthy are content because they are wealthy. And what is the secret to such contentment? It's the word Paul uses. Secret, something that's behind a mystery. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is not a verse for athletes. This is not a verse for climbing mountains. This is not a verse for inspirational calendars. It is the key to facing any and every situation in life with contentment. That's what Paul's talking about. I can endure being in need because I have learned to be the secret, I've learned the secret of being content. And that is that I can do all things. I could be content because of Christ strengthening me even when I am in great need. And when I have an abundance, when I have plenty, I can be content because Christ strengthens me. I'm not corrupted or drawn into or become bound to the earth and all of the world's perspectives when I have plenty because of the strength of Christ. He calls this a secret because you can only arrive at an understanding like this from being in Christ and knowing his strength. You have to be on the inside. From the outside... It looks ludicrous to be content when you're in need or to be content when you have plenty because the human race is just flat out never content whether in need or having plenty. Paul's contentment means that his relationship with the Philippians is not one of use. The Philippians are not Paul's patrons And Paul is not using the Philippians to fund his dream or line his pocket or pad his 401k. 
It's not a relationship of utility. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Isn't it odd that those who, who preach prosperity, if you just believe, if you just name it, if you just claim it, isn't it odd that those who preach such prosperity are always asking you for money? That they, are all, that they always have some need that you can meet. Not Paul. Paul wants to be crystal clear that I rejoice in this gift that you have sent me with Epaphroditus, not because of need, though it met a need, but not because it met the need, because I know what it means to be content even when I'm in great need, but because of what it says about your concern. My motive is not to always ask you and present all my needs to you. This perspective of perfect contentment is necessary to give and to receive according to the gospel. Third perspective is one of extraordinary partnership. Extraordinary partnership. Verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. What is important to Paul is not that they have met his need, but the kindness that they have shown, and that the kindness is their sharing in his trouble. This word sharing is the same word for fellowship. It is the same word for partnership, which we see in the next verse. No church entered into partnership with me. It's the same word that Paul used back in chapter 1, verse 5. And if you've been with us for the study of Philippians, you may recall that we spent a lot of time on this word and its importance in Paul's relationship with the church in Philippi that they had a gospel partnership. In verses 3 and 4, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership or fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you. Here's this word, mind. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Partakers. It's the same word. Sharers. Fellowshippers with me. Partners with me in grace. You're partners with me in the gospel. You're partners with me in grace. And you're partners with me in trouble and suffering. You have bound yourself to me in such a way that you take my trouble upon yourselves as though they were your own. That's the partnership. And it's an extraordinary one. This has been the the relationship with the Philippians from the very beginning. This is what he's talking about in verses 15 and 16. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, and he means when our relationship in the gospel began, when I first came to Philippi, when I first preached the gospel, and you as a church in Philippi were born out of my preaching of the gospel, 
That's the, the beginning of the gospel. You know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Well, what's important about Thessalonica? Well, you can find Paul's preaching in Philippi and the founding of the church there in Acts chapter 16. You may remember the story. Paul and Silas come in. Things go badly. They end up being dragged out by the magistrates, beaten, thrown in prison without any kind of trial, even though Paul is a Roman citizen, which gets the magistrate in some trouble. In the end, they ask them to leave town, and Paul says, you'll escort us out of town. He does that for the sake of the gospel, and they do so. And Paul goes on then to Amphipolis, and he goes on to Apollonia, and these are all towns within the region of Macedonia, and he ends up in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, he plants another church. That's why we have the letters to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Paul preaches the gospel there, and the church of Thessalonica is born. It's not a very long time between being in Philippi and being in Thessalonica. And Paul's point is that by the time I was even in Thessalonica, you Philippians were already supporting me. You were already meeting needs. You had already partnered with me in the gospel. That's how enthusiastic they were. The Philippian church got it in terms of the mission And their support in Thessalonica helped Paul then travel on to Athens and then Corinth to preach the gospel. There aren't many churches with this kind of ardent, enthusiastic partnership. Supporting the gospel work. That's why I call it an extraordinary partnership. There was no other church like the Philippian church that partnered with Paul in such a way. And Paul is acknowledging to them this gift that you sent me. It may have met a need, but the real issue is that you share in my troubles. You have been partners. You have been joined with me together, both of us lockstep in the gospel for all these years. And it brings me great joy. And it is this perspective of an extraordinary partnership that is necessary for gospel giving and receiving. That we, when we support the work of the gospel, when we exercise the work of the gospel, complete the work of the gospel, are not just patrons or receivers, that we are partners in the gospel. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. Let me give you the fourth perspective here. The fourth perspective is a perspective of eternal investments. Eternal investments. Again, in verse 17, Paul is emphatic. Not that I seek the gift. Again, Paul wants to be crystal clear. He wants them to understand that his joy over them sharing in his troubles of being partnered with him does not mean that Paul has some expectation or has laid any kind of obligation on the Philippians to send him money, whether he's in prison or preaching, free preaching. He's preaching wherever he was. 
whether he's in prison or whether he's free, that he doesn't have this expectation or obligation. It is because of their partnership. And so he's emphatic, not that I seek the gift. In other words, my motive is not self-interest, but it is your interest. It's your interest. And he goes on here. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. It's not just what it means to me in meeting my need, but what it means to increasing to your credit. And this word fruit is a word picture here for gain or for profit. Paul is using the language of investing. Paul knows that their gift to him is really an investment towards eternity. It's similar to his picture back in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, where he says, but whatever gain I had and all the gain he had were all of his credentials, all of his righteousness, all of the confidence in the flesh, his heritage, his zeal for his faith and his nation. Those were his credentials, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I moved it all from my credit column to my debit column. It's the same kind of language here. This is fruit that increases to your credit, but the picture is different. This fruit is a fruit that comes from righteousness. It is gain that comes from righteousness for eternal reward, not from the flesh to gain righteousness, do you see? Listen to Philippians chapter 1, or verses 10 and 11, so that you may approve what is excellent. I'm praying this, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's this fruit he's talking about. And he sees their gift as an investment, as fruit, not so much for his own interest, but for their gain in eternity on the day of Christ. On that day, accounts will be harvested. The idea, at least here, is not that there is loss, but that what has been invested will be harvested, and that will be praise from God. Paul says, I see your gift as an investment in eternity. What a perspective that someone who receives a gift, even, they're in, in the, even though they're in need, their joy is so enlivened because they see the fact that they would sacrifice and send me this gift shows that they have an eternal perspective and they would invest and give for eternity. And I know that God sees their gift And that he has added it to your account. He's added it to your account. That's a necessary perspective. That's not optional when it comes to giving and receiving in the gospel. The fifth perspective is a perspective of acceptable offering. Acceptable offering. Verse 18. I have received full payment 
and more. I am well supplied. It's a pretty substantial gift they had sent to him. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Paul would say, this is a situation now where I'm in abundance. Even though I'm in prison, I'm in abundance. You've put me over the top. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Watch. It was a gift to Paul, but really it was an offering to God. If you want to talk about perspective, think about what this reveals about the Philippians' perspective. They sent this gift not with some plan or some agenda. This is a gift with no agenda, no strings, no control. Hey, I gave you that gift. How are you going to use it, Paul? No strings. The Philippians saw it as an offering to God. It reveals Paul's perspective that God is the focus of their giving, that he is the true and ultimate recipient of the financial gift, that that financial gift is actually a sacrificial offering to him, to God, I mean, not to himself, to Paul. And it reveals God's perspective that a gift given in this way is an offering, an offering that is fragrant, acceptable, and pleasing. See, this is the fruit of righteousness. This is the fruit increasing to your credit. It was a gift that was an acceptable offering. Do we see our giving as offerings to God. It is a necessary perspective. It is not first and foremost about the recipient. It is first and foremost about the one who has given it in the first place and offering it back to him as a fragrant sacrifice. Which brings me to the sixth perspective. We must have a perspective of endless supply. Endless supply, verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This is a promise. This is a promise. And it all comes down to this. God is the supplier. He is the supplier. And his resources have no limits. Now, this doesn't mean that you and I get it all, all the time. There are some who would say that. My God will supply all your needs. If you name it, you get it. And if you're not getting it, there's some fault in your faith or in your walk. Or you're not giving enough because it'll come back to you multiplied. Paul says, my God will meet all your needs. Not he will feed every materialistic desire we might have, but that he will meet all our needs. And what is left to say? 
Because he is the supplier, he gets the glory. Verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So be it. Because he is the supplier, he gets the glory. It all begins with him and it all ends with him. It is endless supply. There is no limit, no need to worry, no need to fret. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul ends then with some greetings. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. So Paul is always concerned to link believers together. Whenever he writes to one city, he passes along greetings from his team, whoever's with him, and believers in the city wherever he is, even if he's in prison. And don't miss in verse 22, especially those of Caesar's household, <laughs> that even within Caesar's own household, which would be not just his family members, but all of his servants and officials and attendants who would ever belong to, uh, we might call it the White House staff, Whoever, all of those in Caesar's household who are saints, who have believed the gospel. I think Paul just can't get away from the fact that as he's in prison for the gospel and preaching that soldiers and officials and attendants and secretaries and whoever are coming to Christ. They know who he is. They know why he's there, and many of them have turned. And so there are many in Caesar's own household who have come to Christ. And he says, they greet you because I've talked about you to them. They wondered, where did all of that come from? Well, this is Epaphroditus. He's from Philippi. And the church in Philippi has been supporting me for years. And I haven't heard from them in a while, but that's because I've been on the move and we're partners in this gospel. And you know what? You're connected to the church in Philippi too. Because it's because of their support that I've ended up here in prison, which is God's purpose for the advance of the gospel. Why you've heard it and you've come to Christ. You are linked to the church in Philippi. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So, necessary perspectives. A perspective of persistent concern a perspective of perfect contentment, a perspective of extraordinary partnership, a perspective of eternal investments, a perspective of acceptable offering, and the perspective of endless supply. And let me try to draw all this together for us because this is a very personal passage between Paul and the Philippians. But I believe it results in what I will call the triangle of gospel giving and receiving. The triangle of gospel giving and receiving. And what you have is you have the Philippians. And they are partnered with Paul. And so they give a gift to Paul. This isn't the first time, but it's the first time in a while they have sent this gift, this support to Paul. Where did that gift come from? Where did the, the wealth, the resources come from for them to give the gift? 
the supplier. God, who supplies all needs and all things, has given them this. So they give it to Paul. Now here's Paul. He receives this gift. And yes, he has been in need. He has been in prison. He doesn't have a lot of resources. And when he receives this gift from the Philippians, how does he perceive it? How does he see it? He receives it with joy because he sees this partnership and their one-mindedness, their mind toward him. That gives him joy. And he sees this gift that they've given him and he sees their look to the supplier and he says, you've offered this to God and God is looking upon your gift gift to me as an acceptable and fragrant offering to him. So they've given it to God by giving it to Paul, and Paul gives it back to God by his glorifying God and in his joy having received it from them. Do you see? And in the center is the gospel, which God empowers to save people. And Paul says, your gift is advancing that work which is an offering to God. And this offering that you send to me is fruit that God, the supplier, now gives to your eternal account. That's the perspective. That's the way we need to see giving and receiving. What if mission supporters and mission ministries or agencies began to see giving and receiving like that? What if church planters and churches that are planting churches began to see giving and receiving like that? What if this passage formed the foundation and the basis for all that we do when we give to church plants when we give to missions of compassion like the orphanage in India, the Elisha Foundation, a ministry to those with disabilities, ministries that help those who are homeless and struggling like the Everett Gospel Mission and the Vision House, what if we saw all of this in this paradigm? We give, but it's a partnership. And it's an offering to God that God then Credits to our account, it's fruit. And those who receive it would see it as, yes, it's a a gift to me, but it's not about my need. It's about the fact that you've partnered and you share in our hardship as well as in our victories. And we see it as an offering that's sacrifice that's pleasing to God and fragrant to God. And so we're filled with joy. Often it is a patronage relationship. Those who give want some kind of control or have some kind of agenda. I gave the gift. I want to know how you're going to spend it and whether you're not going to spend it all the ways that I think you should be spending it. And we have receivers who end up just soliciting and trying to raise funds focused on needs instead of partnership. We want partnerships. We want a mindset that builds relationships, whether that is in planting churches or pursuing ministries of compassion, partnering with them to reach those who don't know Christ. That is who we want to be.
And when you go online and you look at how we go about mission, and you can do that on our website, and you can see the various church plants that, that we support. You can see the various ministries of compassion that we support and partner with. You can see those. But no, this is, this is the gospel. This is living out the priority of the gospel in Crossway Fellowship that we partner in the gospel with planters. And someday, it may be, we would hope that we will end up planting ourselves out of Crossway Fellowship. Again, as a partnership in the gospel. It's no accident that Paul ends this letter by looking at this relationship and All of these appeals to being of the same mind and being of one mind, having the mind of Christ, and says, look, this is how it's illustrated. This is how it's lived out. You're doing it in supporting me. Do it in your love for one another. Do it because of the priority of the gospel. It must take precedence in all of life.